chapter uh, 20. We're going to be finishing this chapter. We're going to be picking back up in verse 40. We ended in verse 40. We're going to pick back up in verse 40 as we as we do this this morning. I want to begin in prayer. Um, we have in our own church we have had a chaplaincy uh, ministry uh, for a while now, um, and we are actually expanding that. God has has made it the opportunity for us to actually have a Fremont County coalition of chaplains that our church is now kind of heading up and, and, and sponsoring. So there's three additional chaplains that are coming on board in our chaplaincy ministry. One of them is a pastor from the Christian Family Fellowship. You guys may have known him. His name's Sean Johnson. He's a, a wonderful man. He loves the Lord. He's been ministering in our community for 25 years. He's the associate pastor there. But in this meeting, I told him that he was on our list to be praying. I told him he's on our list, but uh, you're on our list. We're, he told him we were praying for his church this week as we pray for other churches, the Christian Family Fellowship, and, and he, he shared some of the challenges that they're having. They've been without a pastor now for about three months. Um, they have had a, a turnover in, in, the past, in the head pastor position over the last couple of years. Uh, I think this is going to be the, the third or fourth one, and um, so they have a guy that they kind of uh, made an offer to, a guy from out of another part of someone who's coming in from out of town. And so the church really is, is, is kind of being overseen in the interim and led by Sean, uh, who's doing a wonderful job. But they're in need of a, of a senior pastor, and he's asked for prayer for their church, that they would have unity with the decisions that's, that's being made. And so as we pray for our time together this morning, let's pray for Christian Family Fellowship, uh, Pastor Sean, and leadership there as, as they make this decision for who will lead that church. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing in Juarez through Nolan and Marie and through the guys down there, Lord, who have planted the churches and those who are in the pastoral school of ministry right now. And we ask, God, that you would continue to provide for them, that you give them boldness and courage, Lord, to go and minister to this, this, these people who have such a great need right now who are homeless, and, and a lot of them are really trying to they're fleeing because they're, they're, they're afraid of the cartel, and they're, they're looking for a better life. And so, Lord, um, the better life begins with you. Lord, it doesn't matter what we receive in this world, but even if we gain all the riches in this world and don't have you, Lord, it amounts to nothing. So we pray, God, for the gospel message to go forth, for people's lives to be changed by the power uh, of, of the knowledge of what Jesus done for them on the cross and that they would receive them as their own Lord and Savior and in order that they would be ministered to in the process as well um, through um, practical ways and meeting the needs as they're suffering. Lord, for our time here this morning, we pray that you would teach us by your Spirit. Lord, as we study your Word, we know that you have truths for us to receive. And Lord, that we would respond to those truths, Lord, in, in the affirmative and, and with a willingness to do what you ask of us and to build our lives upon the truths that you make known to us. And for our brothers and sisters at the Christian Family Fellowship, the congregation there, Lord, as they're going through, again, another change in leadership, <clears throat> we pray for the leaders to make a wise decision, Lord, a godly decision on who would lead that church, and that then he would be empowered by them and by you, Lord, to to cast vision and mission into this community through, through their love for you. And for Pastor Sean uh, Johnson, who is in the midst of all of this right now, pray him, give him patience, pray him, give him wisdom and discernment, pray him, Lord, that you would continue just to give him a heart of love for you and those around him, Lord, as he ministers to the people at that church. And Lord, we ask you would provide for their needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 40, let's read. It says in verse 40, but after that, they dared not question him anymore. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. And of course, we're not speaking of dirty Harry. We're speaking of Jesus Christ, right? Even better. Dared not question him anymore. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord, how is it then that he is his son? Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes 
love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive a greater condemnation. And Lord, in this word, we, we, we get a message about hypocrisy, a warning, Lord, against um, outward religious acts and inward um, rotting things. And we pray, God, that that would never be the case with this church here. Lord, that, that um, what would be um, evident on the outside would be a, a result of the, the change that we've received from you on the inside. God, I pray, Lord, as you speak to us today, that we would have hope, that we would have love and trust in the things that you make known to us. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who, who doubts, anyone here, Lord, who has questions, anyone here who has fears, Lord, that you would meet them in their place that they're at, and Lord, that you would lead them into a place of love, a place of hope, a place of promise, uh, a place of security in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if you were here with, last, with this last week, we, we studied through the very first 39, if not 40, verses of this chapter. And, and because of that, you know, we know that the they who's mentioned in verse 40, those or they who dared not question Jesus anymore is a reference to Israel's religious leaders, the ones that Jesus has been having this conflict with now for quite a while. And it's all kind of coming to a head. It's ramping up. And, and it's come to this place where we're told where, where Jesus has, has dealt with them in such a way, where he's disarmed them in such a way that they dared not question him anymore. And we know that, that they had come to question Jesus and specifically his authority because he had entered into the temple and he had drove out all those who had been permitted by these very same leaders to do some real unjust things in the house of God. And we know that their, their questioning uh, wasn't genuine, that their questioning was not an attempt to seek or find the truth, rather their questioning came with an agenda. You ever met someone like that, that they ask you a question and you're like, you're afraid to answer because you know there's like something on the backside of it is like, and, 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 and you know, we know what that's like. Well, Jesus knew too, and he knew in not in a just kind of a sensing way, he being God knew what they were up to. He knew that they weren't seekers of the truth and that they were trying to corner him and to say something wrong so that they might have something against him to accuse him or to have him arrested. Uh, but no matter what these religious leaders did, they were unable, this is the key we talked about last week, they were unable to find any fault in him. And I love it because we saw the, the biblical connection to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, where Jesus being the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God who would be sacrificed for our sins, was like the Passover lambs had they had been examined before they were sacrificed to see if there was any kind of spot or blemish in them. We see that Jesus, by this questioning as he was presenting himself to these religious leaders and to the people, was also being examined, but found to be without fault, without spot, without blemish. In fact, every time Jesus responded to their questioning, we know that he, he responded to them by referencing or quoting Old Testament scriptures. And in doing so, this is the awesome thing about God's word, guys. God's word will make you smart. I love that. You know, we pray, God says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask, and he will give you liberally wisdom when we ask for it. But wisdom doesn't come from like God just speaking, you know, giving us this ability to be really smart, okay? It's not about being book smart. It's about being, it's about being this kind of book smart, knowing God's word and having it implanted in your heart and having your mind renewed and transformed, being instructed in, in righteousness. And, and um, Jesus gives us this, that example that when we, when we take his word, when we rely on his word, when we speak God's word, into, our, into um, the world that we live in, into the lives of those around us, that, that wisdom is brought forth, that, that, that um, it makes you, he makes you smart. God's word makes you smart. And, and in, as Jesus quoted these Old Testament scriptures to these religious leaders, you know what happened is, is that he revealed certain things. He revealed, first of all, their ignorance. 
He revealed the ignorance, the foolishness, as well as the ungodly motives of these religious leaders who refused to repent and submit to the truths that, that Jesus was revealing to them. Often I'll sit with people who come in for counseling, lots of counseling, financial counseling, relationship counseling, marriage counseling, just all the problems of life. And, and they've been building their lives according to certain things, that truths that they've received from the world in different areas. And, and, and they've ended up in this place where they're suffering, where, 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 where what they have built their life on is now just kind of crumbled underneath them, and that's why they're in for counseling. And, and, and what I do is I take people to God's Word. Here at this church, we do biblical counseling, and only biblical counseling. In other words, we take the problem, the situations that are going on in our lives that people need help in, and we go, well, God's Word says this. Well, yeah, but, but you know, I read about this, and someone told me I should do that, and I just kind of want to go often, and how well did that work out for you? You know, and I've, I've, I've had that spoken into my own life over and over and over again, but when you come to God's Word, sometimes you just, it seems so simple, but yet the truth is simple. It's simple. It's not a complicated thing. And God makes his truth known to us through, through his word, and he reveals our own ignorance. He reveals our own foolishness in, in situations, and it reveals also our, un, our own ungodly motives, the reason for why we really were doing what we did when we got to the place where we were at. God exposes those things and the heart behind it. And in doing so with these religious leaders, he, he revealed the fact that, that in all these things that they were unwilling to repent, they were unwilling to repent because they were unwilling to submit themselves to the truths that Jesus had made known to them. And man, there's a warning in that for us. When God makes the truth known to us, how will we respond? What will we do? And so as verse 40 tells us, these religious leaders who were refused to repent and, and, and refused to submit to the truths that Jesus was revealing to him. it tells us in verse 40 that they dared not question him anymore because he exposed them for what they were. He revealed their ignorance. He revealed their foolishness. He revealed their ungodly motives to the people around him. But this did not mean, as we read on in the weeks coming, this does not mean, and you guys know this, that they stopped trying to figure out a way to accuse Jesus of some kind of wrongdoing and trying to get rid of him out of their lives forever. And as we continue on through the final verses of this chapter, it's important for us to remember, remember this, that even before Jesus had, had driven out or Jesus had drove out those who were doing business in the house of God, these, these religious leaders were offended with Jesus and offended, offended by him and, and angered with him for a long time leading up to this. Um, and, 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 and when I began to study this out and think about this, we can really kind of be, be our, our, perceptive, our perception of it can be smaller uh, than the, the actual bigger picture when we begin to, when we just concentrate on what's been happening in the last few days with Jesus after he rode into Jerusalem. But even as Jesus in, in, in this conversation and that he's having with these guys, we remember that he referenced John the Baptist. They're like, tell us where your authority comes from. What gives you the right to do what you've done? And Jesus said, you know, answer me this and then I will answer you. He said, where did John the Baptist's authority come from? And, and I want to go back to all of that, but we know that when John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness, right, and Jesus came and John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right, and he was baptized, Jesus was baptized by John, we know that these same religious leaders were present at that, at that point. And really, the offense by the truths that were being made known to them started way back then on the day when Jesus was revealed by John the Baptist to be the Messiah. That's what set the things in motion. And it only continued on uh, up to this point, and, and, and we know that it even intensified uh, on the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and when he permitted his disciples to publicly proclaim him. Now here's the key for what connects us to where we're at this morning. They publicly proclaimed him to be the Messiah, Specifically, they said, the son of David, right, who had been sent by God. And we went into the background behind that in Psalm 118 and all those things. But because of that phrase, because of that, that, that statement that was being made, Jesus then begins to question 
the religious leaders here about David and his son and all these things that we're going to talk about. And, and we know that Jesus allowed for this at that time for the people, the disciples, to do this, to proclaim this in spite of the leader's demands for him to command them to be silent. In fact, we know that even before, before the questioning of these leaders began, the people continued to praise God and to proclaim Jesus even while the days following, even while Jesus taught in the temple and when he healed the people who came to him there to proclaim him to be the, the, the one who'd come in the name of the Lord, the Messiah, the son, again this phrase, the son of David. And in light of this, we see that the, question, the questions um, Jesus had been asked, in light of this, we see that the questions that Jesus had been asked as he was, was being examined by these religious leaders, they were not random questions. They, as, as they were really a direct attempt to prove that Jesus was not who the people had declared him and proclaimed him to be. Their questions were specifically a targeted attack at the claims the people were making, at the proclamations that, that the people were making. Yet, because they had questioned Jesus and received answers to give them, okay, listen, yet because Jesus, yet, yet because they had questioned Jesus, and they had received answers to give them spiritual understanding. It wasn't just to expose their foolishness. It wasn't just to expose their ungodly motives. It was really to give them answers of truth, to give them understanding. And, and, and so they received spiritual understanding in light of the answers that Jesus gave them. And, and because of that, think about it, because of that, now they were in a dilemma. And the real dilemma was not how the people would respond to them. The real dilemma was individual. Because now with the truth, with the spiritual understanding, they had to make a decision. You see, when, whenever I'm counseling with someone or whenever you present God's word to someone, you know what it does? It puts them in a spot where they then have to make a decision with the truth that you've given them. And these religious leaders, the most important thing that was before them now is that they had to make a decision, a decision to either accept or reject Jesus as their Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, who had been sent to save them. That was the question at hand. And the point is, is even those these religious leaders that come to question Jesus, we see throughout the whole of this that he was in control of the conversation. From the very beginning question, he was leading them down a path. And even though they, at this point, dared not question him anymore, we see from the very final verses of this chapter that we read here is that Jesus was not done with them. I love that. They were done with Jesus, but he was not done with them. And man, think about that in regards to people who you love. People who've been confronted with the truth that come of question and they're like, I'm done with that Jesus guy. You know, Jesus isn't done with them, guys. Your friends, your family, your coworkers, Jesus isn't done with them. And he's pursuing them and he's revealing truth to them and he's given them spiritual understanding because he wants them to come to this place where they, where they know him individually and personally and submit their lives to him. He's not done with them. And even though... And, and, and even though uh, they were done with him, and we see now that Jesus, they're the ones that had come asking the questions. They weren't going to ask anymore. And so Jesus now is the one who's asking the questions. And in doing so, he was leading them to the place where they would have to answer the question that every person must answer. He was asking a question based upon what he had revealed to them. He was asking them a question that every person must answer. And this, this all-important, life-changing question, all-important, life-changing question, life-saving question, is the same question that Jesus had previously asked his own disciples, the 12 apostles, back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, when he had said to them, he said, who do you say that I am? Remember, Jesus had originally prefaced that question, you know, who do the people say that I am? And some people say, well, you're John, come back to life, you're one of the prophets, all these things. And, then, and Jesus was leading them into truth, and he was saying, but who do you say 
that I am? And this is the all-important question that every person has to be confronted with. This is the question that the, the, the religious leaders were being questioned with. In essence, who do you say that I am? And if you remember, Peter was the one who spoke up for the 12 at that time back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, and he correctly answered in that moment and said, truly, you are the son of the living God. And then Jesus commended Peter and said, you have said well, and that God had revealed this to him, that God had made that known to him. And the reason why this is the most important question that any one of us will ever answer is because our eternal destiny is dependent upon what we believe in our hearts and dependent upon what we confess with our mouths about the very person of Jesus Christ. Who do we say that he is? In 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit confesses or every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God and in course in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 10 it says this it says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved why for with the heart One believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So, in light of this, in light of all this, Jesus asked these religious leaders this all-important question in verse 41, right? And he, 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 he worded it like this. He said, how can they say, first of all, they, speaking of, of, of the prophets, they, we know specifically, um, David, But we'll get to that in a minute. He said, how can they say that the Christ, meaning that the anointed one who is sent by God is the son of David? And of course, he's referring to the crowds of people in the moment. But this is, this is a, their, their speaking of this was, a, was not just something they've come up on their own. They were taking what the, the word of God had prophesied about and, and, and then taking it and applying it to what had been revealed to them when they saw Jesus Christ. And so... As Jesus questions the the religious leaders who had told the disciples to shut up from saying this, he's now saying, how can they say this? Why are they saying this, and how can it be true? How can they say that the Christ, meaning the anointed one who is sent by God, is the son of David? And with this question, Jesus was literally asking these leaders, what do you think about the Christ, the anointed one, the one who would be sent God? Whose son is he? Whose son is he? And in doing so, Jesus knew. He knew the answer. He knew the canned answer that would, that would enter into their minds. Any Jewish man, any Jewish person, especially the religious leaders, knew the answer to the question that the Christ, the, 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 the um, correct doctrinal answer was that the Christ is the son of David. The Christ is the son of David. Because the Hebrew people based their beliefs about the Messiah strictly upon the Old Testament writings of the prophets like Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah who had all prophesied, you can go there and see this exact wordage here, that prophesied that God had ordained it for the Messiah to not only come from the tribe of Judah, right? From the tribe of Judah, but he was to be born of the family of David, of the tribe of Judah, of the descendant of David, So to conclude that the Messiah was a descendant of David was doctrinally correct, but this was only one of the correct answers. It was only part of the correct answer. And in light of this, Jesus went on, look then in verse 42, right, to refer these religious leaders specifically to Psalm 110. This is a quote, verse 42, where David says, now David himself, or where Jesus said, now David himself said in the book of Psalms, and then he quoted, the Lord said to my Lord, that's from Psalm 110, which was written by King David, and he recalled, Jesus in here recalled the words of David, who was speaking of the coming of the Messiah, and he did so in order to point out what he had then said, in verse 44, that if the Messiah is David's Lord, how then can he also be David's son? There's, there's, a, 
There's a perplexing dilemma there when you really think about it. If he's the Lord, how can he be his son? If he can be God, how can he be his son? The Lord, right? Why does he call him that? Why does he call him the Lord? And with this question, Jesus presented this mystery, if you will, for them to solve. But the only logical conclusion was obvious in that the Messiah had to be both God and man. In other words, as the eternal God, the Messiah is David's Lord, but as a man, he is also David's son, a descendant. Now, it's a mind-blowing thing. We still don't understand exactly how that works. We just know how it worked, (laughs) right? That the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, a virgin, and she conceived and gave birth to a child, right? We know the process. We just don't know how it works. (laughs) But in that, we have the God-man, God in flesh. And this is, this, is what, this is what Jesus is opening their eyes to. And when we go back to what took place just a few days before this, on a day that we refer to uh, as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, we know that the crowds that lined the street, that they had paid this public tribute to Jesus by declaring him the son of David. And by lifting their voices as they quoted from Psalm 118 and said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And in response to the religious leaders questioning initially, we know that Jesus also, we talked about this last week, we're connecting the dots here, that Jesus also quoted for Psalm 118 and referred to himself, do you remember, as the what? The chief, the chief cornerstone. And, and to these religious leaders who were rejecting him in this moment, that they were turning away from these, these truths that were being revealed to them about who Christ, who the Christ is, that who Jesus is, he referred to them as the builders who were rejecting the stone, the chief cornerstone, all from Psalm 118. And listen, and in and, and, and doing so, or by doing so, make no mistakes of it, that Jesus was making a clear claim to be the Messiah who had been promised to Israel. And now, in addition to making a claim about being the Messiah who was given to Israel, he was making this clear claim to be not only the descendant of David, but God in the flesh. And with this final question, Jesus was revealing the most important fact, the most important truth, giving them understanding about the Messiah, not only who he is, but what he is, and in that Jesus, in claiming and showing himself to be the, 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 the one spoken of in Psalm 110, as referred to by David, is that he is the Messiah, that the Messiah is the God, is God in the flesh. And, and these men who knew these passages of Scripture, who had studied them, who had, had been looking for the Messiah as a result of them, these guys should have been brought to their knees when this truth was revealed to them, when they were given this understanding. But sadly, we see that they did not believe him. And such is the case as many people today, when they are confronted with the same truth. They did not believe him. And listen, They did not believe him, but it was not for lack of reason. Sometimes people will want you to believe something they say, but they don't give you a reason to do so, correct? Jesus has given them here in this moment and everything leading up to it, every reason to believe not only that he is the Messiah, the one sent by God, the anointed one, but as the descendant of David, that he is also fully man and fully God. He's given them every reason, prophetic fulfillment, biblical reason to believe. Not only that, he's opened up their understanding. He's given them the reason and given them understanding. And so it wasn't for lack of reason or lack of understanding that they did not believe. And we go, why didn't they believe? They had Jesus. Who better to reveal truth to you? Speaking truth, opening their eyes, And the reason they did not believe is because their hearts were hardened by their pride. Their hearts were hardened by their pride and by their self-righteousness and by their hypocrisy. Consequently, and Jesus knew this, 
And so he brings them to this place of reason. He brings them to this place of understanding. There's no response from them. And then what do we read Jesus do in verse 45? He then again turns to the people and then says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware. Beware. And, and guys, we have to think about this in relationship to what's going on in our own lives around us within the church today because there's a crossover that, that invades into our own lives when we see people who are in this very place because there are, there are religious leaders in this world today who we need to be aware of. And it's rooted in this, pride, self-righteousness, and hypocrisy. And so Jesus, knowing that these people were a danger, um, these people who were called to lead God's people, Jesus, according to verse 44 and 45, in the hearing of all the people, spoke this warning about the religious leaders and said, listen again, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the, blessed, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. In other words, doing, doing outward religious things at a pretense, he says, these, beware of them. Why? Because they'll receive a greater condemnation. And the bottom line is that these religious leaders, guys, listen, their pride, and, and, and this isn't just, let's, let's just preface this by, before we go into by saying this. It's real easy to go, oh yeah, we have religious leaders like this, and you know, they're on TV, and they're on the radio, and maybe even be in some of the churches in our own community, and we need to beware of them. We need to warn others about them. And we do. The Bible says to speak truth in regards to exposing those who are false teachers, who are leading people astray. We see Jesus do the very same thing. But the most important aspect of this for us this morning is, is going, okay, Lord, what part inside of me do I need to beware of? What part of, of hypocrisy in my own life? What part of pride in my own life? What part of, of, of self-righteousness in my own life do I need to be aware of? to be aware of. And so as we go through this and look at these warnings and see how it breaks out, man, let's look at ourselves first as we look at these religious leaders, but also be willing to look at others around us in a way where we're looking to, to um, uh, warn people about the danger that they're in. So, so the bottom line is these religious leaders, their pride and self-righteousness, what we see that Jesus reveals to us here is that it brought forth a twofold tragedy. And that's what I want us to look at with the remaining time that we have left. A twofold tragedy, which, by the way, pride and self righteousness, think about it, pride and self righteousness will always take a person, will always take us into these exact same two places of disaster and heartbreak. That's what a tragedy is. A tragedy is a disaster that ends in a heartbreak. And pride and self-righteousness will always take us to this place. The first is this. The first disaster and heartbreak that these religious leaders were in the midst of is that their deliberate hypocrisy was only a mask that was used to cover up their unrighteousness and to enable them to be able to fool and exploit the people that they were leading. Is that not true when that's on, going on in our own lives? Yeah, I mean, it is. You know, hypocrisy is a mask that we use to cover up unrighteousness so that we can fool and even exploit others around us. Now, I don't know the motive that might entail. It can be different in every way, but the, the heart of it is always that, always. And it always comes to some kind of tragic end where there is heartache and disaster. Remember, these same religious leaders had turned the temple of God, we're told, into a den of thieves. And, and their religious devotion, as Jesus speaks about their prayer life here, specifically, which their religious devotion was more than just their prayer life, these outward acts of religious things, their religious devotion was nothing more than play acting, or like Jesus said in verse 47, it was a pretense, meaning that it was just this deceitful charade or charade. Sadly, the people believed that their leaders 
who looked beautiful, if you will, on the outside, were full of, but were full of every unclean thing on the inside. Their leaders, the people believed their leaders to be godly men who were there to help them. And that's a sad thing. But like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, about these men, listen, he said they were blind men who were leading other blind men. And the reality was that they were hypocrites who were taking advantage of people for their own personal gain. And they were literally leading God's people into the same pace of condemnation, into the same pit that they themselves were heading into. And that's why Jesus said, beware, because these guys are headed to even a greater condemnation. And you don't want any of that. Beware. Now, the scribes who were the the professing students of God's word, think about that. I mean, when Jesus speaks about the religious leaders here, he talks about the scribes by name, but he's kind of encompassing the whole. But when he speaks about the scribes, these guys were the lawyers of the law. They were the students. They were the students of the law. The professing students of God's word. They were supposed to be the religious experts when it came to God and religious things. Okay. In fact, just to give you an idea of it, they were the ones who had searched the laws of Moses and figured out that there were 116, 113, excuse me, mitzvah. It's a Hebrew word. There were 106, 113 mitzvah, which simply are the precepts and commands of God. But when you, when you, when, that's what they call it, the 613 mitzvah. Um, precepts and commands of God. They've searched the Torah. They searched God's word, the Old Testament laws, and they, they've come to the conclusion that there's 613. In light of this, the scribes had divided. They even gone a little bit further. They took the 613 mitzvahs, the 613 commands and precepts of God, and they divided them into two categories. But there's nothing wrong in that. But they've come to the conclusion that there were 248 of them that were positive commands. In other words, commands where it says, do this. But they also came to the conclusion that there were 365 negative commands. Commands that said, don't do this. But as we, as we all know, the keeping of any command, much less 613 commands, is pretty much is an, it's an impossible task. And so these religious leaders, being the experts, they had taken the 613 commands that are in the Torah, and, and, and in trying to set a standard that God never intended to be set, they then subcategorized these commands, history teaches us, these precepts and commands of God, and, and they, they subcategorized them as those that were important and those that were unimportant. <laughs> we laugh, but... But do we not do that in our own lives? Oh, that's just a, that's just a white lie. You know, and, and that may be even at the very bottom of it, but you know, when there's compromise in our lives, that's what we've done. We've looked at the, the, the will of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God, and we go, well, that one probably not, doesn't, it's not as bad as this other one. We subcategorize God's will for our lives. We subcategorize God's word for our lives. We subcategorize God's commands for our lives. And in doing so, we go, well, that one's important. That one's not. This one I'll follow. This one, well, maybe not so much. Consequently, guys, the scribes thought and instructed those whom they led to focus on the keeping of the commands that they had deemed as important and not to worry about the unimportant ones. These are the people that Jesus are warning us about. And the deception behind this teaching, the deception behind this belief system as a, as a way of life, the deception is twofold. Listen, the deception is twofold in that the first is that it gives us, it gives this kind of deception gives birth to the promotion of self-righteousness. Because we then set a standard for ourselves that God's never set, and it's usually a standard we think that we can keep, and we go then because of it, look what I've done, I'm not so bad. And some of them might come along, well, what about all those other things? And you're like, oh, those ones are unimportant. And the deception is self-righteousness. I remember when I was, man, when I was way in the world and doing drugs and that whole, that whole lifestyle for years. You know, it started off, well, 
It was okay because my family, my family, we, we would drink and get drunk. That's what you did. It was my, it was my normal. You know, and then I began to, to, to start off by smoking marijuana. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not so bad because at least I'm not doing what all these other people do that, that I knew. And, and they'd be like, oh, come on and try this and try that. I'm like, no way. I don't want to be like you. You're so much worse than me. And, you know, you had this, this standard that we set. And this may be extreme, but this takes place even in our lives as Christians. And Paul says, be careful. Do not compare yourselves among yourselves. You know, as if someone else is the standard. Don't go, well, Sean's the standard, and as long as I'm, you know, doing better than him, I'm all right. That's a pretty low standard, by the way. <laughs> you know who the standard is? Jesus Christ. You know where the bar is? Is the Word of God and what He says. And anytime we compromise that, anytime we categorize something out of our lives, it's because we're deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're righteous on our own. And that's what was going on, and this, this deception of self-righteousness, which is basically the thought that we don't need forgiveness and we don't need a Savior because why? We're good enough to then stand before God on Judgment Day and rely upon our own goodness. Oh my gosh. And people do that. Unbelieving people all over the world today are doing that. They look at, they look at what everybody else is doing around them and they say one or two things. I'm either better them or what's okay for them may not be okay for me. But what's okay for me may not be okay for them. And it's this, this ever-changing bar of what's right and what's wrong. And there's going to be an account that has to be given to that. And it's not according to the standard that we set. And when you do that, when people do that, they're indirectly, they might not even consciously be doing it, but indirectly they're saying, I will stand before my maker or before God on, on judgment day, and really I'm, it's, it's this reliance upon my own goodness. But remember in Isaiah chapter 64, verse, verse 6, it says, he says, but we are all an unclean thing. We are all an unclean thing. All of our righteousnesses, are like filthy rags. I mean, the very best that we can do, no matter how low we set that standard for ourselves, the best that we can ever do is like a filthy thing. And I remember, those, I, we set those standards for ourselves, and what do we do? We break them. Even the standards we set for ourselves, throw out God's standard, and what do you think took place here? The same thing. You can present this outward appearance of righteousness, but you, we know what's going on in the inside. And the things that I said I would never do, I did. Over and over and over again. And the longer I continued onto that path, the, the worse it got for me, where I was doing things that, that I could never have imagined I would ever do or think or say. And the person that I had become was the person that I am but it wasn't the person that I originally thought that I ever was. And God revealed to me, this is what you're like without me. You have no standards, even though you think that you do. Because you'll do anything given the right motive and the right situation. Because we're all like filthy rags. We all have faded as a leaf, and our iniquities are like the wind, and they've taken us away, swept away. Now, the other deception is that the idea, the idea that when it comes to the keeping of God's commands, that God is going to hold a, a, a personal accountable to only the important ones. And I know this is kind of similar in nature in regards to the, 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 the self-righteousness part of it, but this is the end result. It, 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 again, it's, it's this idea that when it comes to the keeping of God's commands, the deception is, is that God's only going to hold a person accountable to the important ones, the ones that, that man has decided is worth keeping. Yet again, this is nothing more than deception because not, God's not going to judge people on some kind of standard that we have set for ourselves. God does not judge on some kind of standard that we have set for ourselves. On the contrary, if a person rejects Jesus and chooses to stand before God and be judged according to his to his to Judge, be, be, uh, and to be judged according to the commands found in his law, it will be in accordance, the Bible tells, Bible tells us, it'll be in, in accordance to all of the commands in God's law and not just the ones that a person has believed 
are the important ones to keep. But the fact of the matter is, is if any person breaks even one of God's commands, the Bible says that they're guilty of them all, correct? In James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, says, For whoever should keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Why? For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. That's the first tragic thing. That's the first disaster and heartbreak that that hypocrisy, pride, and self-righteousness leads to. Here's the second one, as also revealed here in the text. The second tragedy that came as a result of of the religious leaders' pride and self-righteousness was the fact that they had rejected their own Messiah and then would crucify him. Man, even though we know that God, through that that tragedy, did a, a mighty, awesome work, and God's good at doing that. When we, when we enter into a disastrous thing, guys, it's not, it's not over. If you're in that spot right now, if you feel like the things you've done, the choices that you've made, the truths that you've rejected have led you to this place where they, you give, you've had a tragedy, God's good at turning tragedies into victories and taking what is broken and making it new again. Just, just a little side note. But, but, and that's what we see through the cross. But it was a tragic thing that they, they rejected their own Messiah and they would, they, they would in, end up having him crucified. The bottom line is uh, they, these religious leaders, as a result of their pride, as a result of their self-righteousness, they led their nation into ruin because they would not admit their sin and confess Jesus Christ as the son of David who had been sent by God. And for many, 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 many years in my life, and you guys too, this is exactly to what happened as a result of us because we too would not receive Jesus Christ as the son of David who had been sent by God. And our sin led us into ruin. Now, we must keep in mind that these men, these, these religious men, these religious experts, even though they knew the scripture better than anyone else, here's the key. So what, what was missing? Where was the disconnect? And the disconnect is a result of the pride and, and the, uh, the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness. The disconnect in, in the base level is, is they would not take the truths that had been revealed to them and apply them to their lives. That was the ultimate disconnect. There was no application of the truth into their life. Their religion was a matter, listen, man, this is so dangerous. Their religion was a matter of external observance and not a matter of internal transformation. And, and guys, as Christians today, we can fall prey to that. And truthfully, that's what the world looks at and is disgusted with when the, when the church, even true believers, are more concerned about the external observance than we are about the internal transformation that comes as a result of following after God and knowing his word. And this was these guys, this was what was going on. Their religion was a matter of external observant and not internal transformation. But the fact of the matter is we're all vulnerable to having this same kind of religion in where we hear and know God's word but refuse to receive it, refuse to be changed, refuse to apply to our lives the things that God has spoken to us. This is why James admonishes us to lay aside all filthiness and wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word of God and to be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive ourselves. Because if we are just a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, we are no different than a man, James says, who looks into a mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. In other words, there's no internal transformation. And there is this great risk of becoming like these religious leaders who were at best, we know, at best they were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Clean on the outside, but full of every unclean thing on the inside. And we need to understand when we consider these religious leaders that Jesus had given them Jesus had given them every opportunity to confess their sins and repent, but they had wasted them. They had wasted them. They refused to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who had been sent to save them. And now, as Jesus spoke this word of condemnation, now, now it was too late. Now, in this moment, 
it was too late. Why? Because they had repeatedly hardened their hearts to the many signs, to the many wonders that Jesus had performed before their very eyes. They had hardened their hearts to the spiritual truths that Jesus had made known to them. If the worship team wants to come up, I'll close with this. Unfortunately, this same tragedy is being reenacted today. And this is why Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 gives us a warning by saying, Therefore, listen, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, Today, if we will hear his voice, do not harden our hearts. And, I, and, and, and guys, now more than ever, I believe that we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ need to receive. And, and when we receive, you know what we're called to do? To stand. Right? Receive is this aspect of receiving the Spirit, receiving truth, putting on the full armor of God, and standing without compromise in the truths that Jesus has made known to us. And, and listen, just, I want to make this real for us as we leave this morning because the way to stand in the way that we're called to is, is, is to walk by faith. And walking by faith is simply humbly submitting ourselves to the truth that, that, that is made known to us. When, when God reasons with us and when he gives us understanding, then we submit ourselves to the truth, to the spiritual understanding that Jesus is leading us into. It's summed up by Paul in the book of Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, where he says this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in this body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And, and in doing so, he says, I don't set aside the grace of God. He says, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, he says, then Christ died for nothing. You see, the question of who do you say that I am, the question of who do we say that Jesus is in regards to who we believe Jesus to be, Guys, as you know, it's only the first of many questions that Jesus will ask of us. That's the first one. We have to reconcile that. But you know what happens after that as we're called to walk by faith and stand by truth? Jesus then goes this. Do you love me? Because the Bible says if we love him, we'll do what? Keep his commands. He, he also says, he asks this question, will you follow me? Who do you say that I am? Do you love me? Because once we recognize who he is, what's the next step? We fall in love with him. And if we fall in love with him, then Jesus goes, will you follow me? Because we're called to follow him. Follow the one whom we love. He goes, will you trust me? Do we stand in that place of trust? And again, the very end thing, because all of these things come, culminate together, will you obey me? And this morning, I think that God, in one way or another, is asking all of us these questions again. Who do we say that he is? Do we love him? Are we following him? Do we trust him? Are we, are we obeying him? Let's pray. Will you stand? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for the truths that are found in your word. We're thankful, God, that you've revealed yourself to us. And you've revealed yourself to the whole world and to each and every person. There's no question of who you are and what you do, and what you've come to do, and what you've done, and the promises that you extend. And I pray, God, for anyone here who is struggling with any of these questions in their lives, whether it's the question of who you are, or, or if you love them, or, or if they love you, or do I love you, or, or will I follow you, or these questions, Lord, wherever we're at and whatever struggle we have, I pray, God, that we would lay it down at your feet, that we wouldn't be like these religious leaders, that we would beware of what's inside of our own heart as you revealed it to us, and, Lord, that we would submit to you with meekness, and we would stand in faith because of this new life that you've promised to us and that you've given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, whom we love and in whom we believe. Amen. This morning, after this long